1: Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is getting the yes and. So this was an interesting podcast. Uh, I'm talking to Catalina Daniels uh, and Jim Sherman. Catalina
2: graduated from Harvard Business School and the Free University of Brussels. She spent 17 years at McKinsey, where she was a partner, before leaving to become an entrepreneur and an angel investor. And Jim Sherman graduated from Harvard Business School as well. That's where they met. And Stanford. He started his career at Bain and Company, working in media with Time Inc. and Pearson. And in 1997, he launched the internet division for Martha Stewart Living. That's kind of cool. Uh, they have a new book. It's called Smart Startups: What Every Entrepreneur Needs to Know. Enjoy the pod.
1: Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can't be counted by the tattoo rent. Tomorrow's just another, like the one that comes next. The car on the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Catalina and Jim, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Wonderful to be here.
2: So it's a pleasure. Pleasure. I'm I'm excited to talk to you about this. You're so you're both graduates from Harvard Business School, where you met as students. I think in 1989. So I'm curious why you decided to write about, as you say in the book, "quote what entrepreneurs don't learn at Harvard Business School but wish they did." End quote. <laughs> I'll let either of you take that first. <laughs>
3: um, I guess I could jump in on that. Uh, in that, the reason for writing the book. It really stems from a, an interesting data point where we learned that about seventy percent of businesses, of startups, actually fail. Seventy percent of seeded startups startups fail. Actually, if you want to count all startups, those that don't receive seed funding, the number's even higher—about ninety percent. So the question is, you know, we really ha- ha- just wanted to improve the odds for success in launching a business. And, um, and both Catalina and I had been entrepreneurs. I've been a serial entrepreneur. I think we had a lot of wisdom to impart. And there, and in particular, we, we wanted to figure out ways of imparting to people the, what they maybe didn't learn in business school, what they may have learned the hard way, um, what they wish they had known prior to starting a business. Uh, so that was really the genesis of this, but. The fact that if 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 such a high failure rate, could we play an important role in improving the success rate for founders? Uh, Catalina, what what about what do you think?
0: Well, I, I fully agree with what you said, Jim. Um, I think the the reason for asking them what they wish they had known is Harvard Business School is by now known as an extremely good entrepreneurship school. Yeah, uh, it's actually the school that has. Uh, the most unicorns, um, in terms of absolute numbers. And so we thought it would be interesting to ask people, listen, you benefited from one of the best educations in the world, but with hindsight, what is it that you didn't know that you wanted to know? And we thought that would be interesting. And we thought that could help and inspire a lot of people. And so, uh, yeah, that's, that's why we wrote the book.
2: Uh, it's interesting too. So you know, we we've been embedded at Harvard in the in the business school now for a few years. Second City bringing in sort of improv practices to work on things like storytelling, uh, to talk about sales, to talk about resilience. We, and we do that. We we had a whole program at the University of Chicago at the Booth School of Business, and it was interesting. So what seemed probably ten years ago. Very unlikely. I mean, Harvard produces a lot of comedy writers. We all know that. Uh, but like, why would you bring in improv comedians? But I think over time, more and more, and there's been more research about this, is that these skills of communication, of observing, especially in areas where you are looking to surprise, right? And so, uh, you know, by, by the nature of something being innovative, it means we haven't seen it before. And that's not easy to get people to get on board with, because we as human beings like the familiar. So it, it's it's it might be surprising, but I guess it wouldn't be to you too, i I'm I'm guessing.
0: I think you know, for us as as angel investors, we see a lot of pitches from startups, and what is surprising is that a lot of them focus on the content, but not enough on the storytelling. Yeah, and um. You know, we heard from some entrepreneurs, we interviewed how important it is uh, to work on your storytelling, uh, to convince uh, investors, to convince your team to get on board, to convince uh, your first client or whatever. I'm so happy to hear that Harvard Business School works with people like you uh, to basically help uh, students get better at Improvisation and at making sure they say the right thing at the right time and surprise people. Um, you know, in my role as a venture partner at ERA, um, I get to coach, uh, foreign entrepreneurs, uh, who want to scale in the US. Their storytelling is really bad typically. Mm, I mean, yeah. you know, and, and the best exercises are with people like you. Uh, that are um, stand-up comedians. Well, not you're not a stand-up comedian, but that are stand-up comedians, and that actually come and help them really uh, not only on the content, but also on the delivery uh, right. of of their messages, because that really matters to convey something with passion um, and to find the angle that is convincing enough.
2: Yeah. And Jim, let, let's talk to about the psyche of an entrepreneur, because this is the other thing that I think it, w- that we can be helpful with, because you write in the book, um, quote, knowing you are meant to be an entrepreneur is a journey unto itself. So that implies, of course, that you know, there's a there's an essential difference. Can you talk a little bit about what some of those differences might be?
3: Sure. I mean, we have actually a chapter or it's the preamble where we talk about are you a born entrepreneur? And the the, the challenge is that you know one has to really look and see, okay, what are the key ingredients for being a successful entrepreneur? One is a passion to create. That mm-hmm. is essential. You need to have a creativity. A passion of some sort. You want to create. You want to do something new and different. Not everyone's like that, frankly, but but so you need that. That's a that's part and parcel of of being an entrepreneur. Uh, second is you need to have an extraordinary amount of uh, resilience. Resilience is really crucial. I mean, you have got to. Uh, you need resilience that's going to carry you through the um the very difficult uh, periods of uh, of a startup you have so many ups and downs the roller coaster experience and i think that you know these are really fundamental uh, aspects that make up the psyche if you will uh, of an entrepreneur. Now, do you have to be born that way? That's a key question. Are you born with these inherent qualities or can you learn them? Um, we believe we come down to the conclusion, and this is based on our research that you, you don't have to be born with them. However, if you don't have those skills, it will be more challenging for you to build them up. Mm-hmm. So you can build those skills, but it's just going to be a bit more challenging. Actually, a good example is a sports analogy, right? I mean, Maybe you want to be a, a, a famous basketball player, but some people are endowed with that skill in sports to play basketball. Others are not. That doesn't mean you can't learn it. Doesn't mean you won't be amazing at it, but it may be a little more difficult. So those are a couple of key attributes that you need. Resilience and this passion to create is very, very important. And lastly, it's knowing when to jump, uh, which really is a reflection of uh, of risk assessment, frankly, mm. is really a critical piece of knowing when to jump. You're you're Typical entrepreneur is uh, going to have a reasonable risk tolerance and will know the right time for him or her to make that jump into entrepreneurship.
2: Catalina, I'm curious in your own career, when you look at those attributes, did you walk in the door with the calloused fingers in those three areas or were there areas that you needed to like get better at?
0: Well, I mean, I definitely have passion to create mm-hmm. and I'm definitely resilient uh, people who know me, I think, would give me those qualities. Um But uh, I needed to find the right time to jump. And yeah. in my case, it's an interesting story because I ended up uh, spending 17 years at McKinsey & Company mm-hmm. um, that doesn't, by definition, foster entrepreneurship. It mm-hmm. works with corporates. Well, it works with more entrepreneurs now. Uh, but, you know, at my time, it was only corporates. And I ended up uh, joining McKinsey a little bit by accident. I actually went to business school with the idea of not going back to McKinsey uh, because I always knew that I had this passion to pursue something else, uh, but I couldn't find it. And so after many interviews in my second year at business school, I ended up rejoining McKinsey because I thought, well, it was interesting. Let me go back to it. And it's only after 15 years that I found the right time to jump, um, and so it's it's a very personal thing, as as Jim uh, explained. Um, I think at the time in '91 when I graduated from HBS, it was not the right time for me, uh, despite the fact that I'm a resilient person and that I have passion to create. Um, but after the years, yes, it became the right time to jump. And I can talk about that, but, uh, I think that's a very often, um, underappreciated thing with entrepreneurs. Uh, people have this romantic view that you need to be born entrepreneur and right. have had your first business at the age of eight. And put together a computer at the age of twelve. Well, we right. met a lot of people with very different profiles uh, that had a passion to create and wanted that freedom that were resilient, because if you're not resilient, you shouldn't be an entrepreneur. It's gonna be way too tough. Mm-hmm. But all of them had one additional thing in common. They found they found the right time to jump.
2: What's so so fascinating about this, I did not intend to talk to you about comedy. Why would I talk to you about comedy? Uh, In my last interview was uh, the uh, fellow who wrote a book around the psychology of money. So I've been around playing around this stuff. However, timing, right? Like a great comedian, and here's the thing that's interesting about comedy and what you're talking about with regard to timing. A great comedian is like jumping on something first or before everyone else can see it. And I feels like that's the same thing with an entrepreneur because I think even right in the book, once you see the trend, you're done. Like that's that's you're too late. So this idea of that that risk and that jump early, that timing, that is tricky. That 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 I mean that involves everything you're talking about with storytelling and resilience, but also a tad bit of recklessness, perhaps.
3: Yes. Uh, um... I was just going to say that. It's often the case that you don't know you were riding a wave until after the fact. Right. You know the timing question is: if you think you can read about it in a magazine about a trend, then you're too late. We one of one of the folks we interviewed, I believe it was Justin Yaffe of Henry the Dentist, had said: by the time you read about this in major media, in a magazine or online, then you're well too late uh, Mm -hmm. in riding that wave. So you need you know it's a tricky it's a tricky thing. You I think a lot of people. If they were riding a wave and they're very successful with scaling up their business, they don't know that they've been on that wave until after the fact. You know, so if I look at my own personal case, when I started my first business with West End New Media, an internet strategy consulting firm, believe it or not, in 1998, I didn't know that that was going to be a tremendous wave with the, the rise of the internet. I mean, I don't think that a, a lot of people understood how impactful this new technology would be. Mm-hmm. Of course, it became very clear within just a year or two years. But for those people that got in early in 1997, uh, around the mid 90s, uh, these folks were riding that wave, but didn't realize it until afterwards. Uh, and we saw this with a lot of the entrepreneurs that we spoke with. So a number of them, for example, relied on Facebook, such as Plated and Blue Apron. Right. Both rode the wave of Facebook marketing. And I don't think that th- those founders would not have anticipated that that platform was going to be so hugely important. As Facebook grew, they grew their businesses. So, so, so one can take advantage of Timing of waves. Unfortunately, it's incredibly hard to predict. Uh, some of it's luck, but or some of it's just having a little bit of instinct, and then the, well, what Catalina said earlier: the willingness to jump at that point in time, take the risk, and then later on, hopefully, you'll look back and realize that it was a, that it was the right uh, point to, to take that risk.
2: So, extending the metaphor, I mean, you're you're not going to catch the wave if you're not in the lake or you're not in the ocean. And a lot of what you talk about in the book through your conversations with all the entrepreneurs, and I think from your own experiences, is what it means to be, you know, in that water. And that requires, like, never-ending networking, which which, which I think would be exhaustive to certain people, which is why you don't, don't do this. Uh, and, but the idea of, like, unusual connections, the, the diversity you have in your teams, all these inputs that you need to have... And it's, it's a, very, again, a very similar thing to sort of the relentless, what artists do in a variety of mediums, which is, you know, like they gig, they gig, they gig, they gig, whether it's a small, you know, and they make connections and they discover things. And then they, the other thing they discover is whether they have the a- appetite for doing it or not. Cause it's not, it's, as you, as you pointed out and Catalina, like, like it, it's not everyone's uh, cup of tea to be doing this. And a thing and a thing I'd love you to talk about too, because I think this is also, Key with that, and Justin Jaffe says this in the book as well. That there's no random light bulb moment, and I think our popular culture conception of this is that you know you're uh, an apple's going to hit you on the head, and you got it because literally yes. that's what we were told.
0: <laughs> yes, um, so there is this notion that most entrepreneurs, if not all, wake up one morning uh, and they've got this light bulb moment, and they know. What they should focus on, they go after it. Nothing changes. They're successful. And that's, that's how the story goes. Um, if, if you look at what we heard and, and that was frankly fascinating to me mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, of, of the 18 people that are covered in the book, about half of them followed what we call a deliberate ideation process. Mm-hmm. Um, they had no light bulb moment they actually had no idea to start with. So they went on this process because they knew they wanted to become an entrepreneur, but they didn't have an idea to start with. And they spent, I think Josh Higgs in the, in the case of Plated with his co-founder, they spent six months analyzing all kinds of ideas before landing the idea for Plated. And we heard, so nine of them, 50% went on that path of, sometimes, most of the time, a lengthy ideation process. The other half actually didn't have a light bulb moment either. They had an organic ideation process, which is different because they had a small idea to start with. Mm. And you could talk about a small aha, but they didn't talk about it that way. They had a you know a, a, a small thing in their head like this might work and because of their own experiences of the experiences that or the experiences of their families or friends or whatever they they were able at some point in their lives to connect the dots and that ideation process actually turned out in most cases to be longer than even the deliberate ideation process so in our case, all the entrepreneurs we talked to said literally to us, and we have some quotes about that in the in the book, there is no aha moment. Learning an idea takes time and work and energy. And this romantic view about you're going to wake up one day and you're going to be struck by a wonderful idea that's going to make you extremely successful, forget about it because it didn't happen to us. Jim, I don't know if you want to comment on it, but... To me, it was, for sure. I
3: I would like to, I just want to add that the other very important point is that it's a nonlinear process as well. So in other words, no one goes from A to B, B to C, C to D. And, and, you know, some people on the outside that they may think, oh, these entrepreneurs, they just built it step by step. And it was all very, they were all very successful getting from A to B to C to D to E. And that is not at all the case every single entrepreneur when they were vetting their idea went through periods of taking a step forward taking a step back then another two steps forward one step back josh hicks of plated was very very colorful when we have some quotes in him on this topic and he says anyone that tells you that they went linear, linearly forward with their idea you should throw them out of the room because he just didn't doesn't believe it from anyone hey, we're and the there Lord. are, are <laughs> you know, yeah, there's a quote in the book about this and right. and uh, you know, it's uh, it, there are stories of entrepreneurs that you would maybe walk away thinking from the general press that that, oh, everything just worked out and they, they had, they, they went up like a rocket ship without problems, but it's never that way. It's never that way. There are always steps back and you need to keep going, move forward. But the net, net is you are making progress as, as, as a successful entrepreneur. You need to keep at it, but take those learnings and keep moving forward. So the nonlinear aspect, uh, I, I would say was common also both with the organic as well as the deliberate
1: process.
2: I know Bob Sutton at Stanford has done studies around this where it's something around 2,000 ideas to get to a good one, which always strikes people as incredibly daunting until they understand that we walk around in any given day with like 60,000 ideas that come into our heads. And, you know, and again, and a lot of those are not new. And I think this is also a thing that we should discuss. I mean, from the earliest days of Second City, it's been talked about the fact that we make something out of nothing because that's how we create, create our shows. But it's not invention out of whole cloth i think del close the great improv teacher said uh don't invent remember so i want you to talk a little bit about this idea around most innovation is not introducing entirely new products that 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 these are i think you know that, that that's not necessarily but there's but there's a reframe or there's maybe a new problem to solve right is that is that what it is
3: yes and i and i think that if, if I were to just answer, and I know, Catalina, you will have a lot to say on this in the ideation process of the book, Um but just in brief, I would say that there are, uh you know, when you're looking at different ideas, you don't have to reinvent the wheel necessarily, and in fact, there's a statistic that three quarters of a new of, of new ventures are not reinventing anything new they mm-hmm. may be delivering a better product it may be a less expensive product or something that's more convenient to service that helps to make something convenient but it's not a brand new technology so as um matt Salzberg of blue apron said he wasn't inventing twitter you know he wasn't inventing a new scientific discovery he was leveraging existing technology and basically he knew people were eating food people eat mm-hmm. food, they make food at home. He was in, coming up with a new business model to deliver pre-portioned ingredients with recipes in a box and delivering that every week. Sounds simple. It's actually quite complicated to do it, but um, but that basically is the vision. And and the vast majority of the HBS companies were business model innovations, not brand new science or tech uh, innovation. Kathleen, do you have more
0: to say on that? Yeah. So, well, I think it's, it's a very interesting and important point because again, a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs think they need to come up with something brand new. Um, and, and when you think about it and, and when you look around, there are actually not that many things that are brand new to your point. Um, you know, it's it's exceptional. Um, I think a guy like Steve Jobs could come up with things that are brand new and that people didn't even know they needed. Uh he had this vision about, you know, uh creating uh things people were not waiting for. But in in our case, um all the people we talk to actually they didn't really invent anything brand new but applied as Jim says created a new, entirely new business model. So yeah. in the case of Blue Apron, um, Matt knew that people eat every day. They go to the grocery, they buy vegetables, they buy things to cook, they cook at home. So he didn't invent anything around the notion of cooking a meal or, uh you know, uh, eating or whatever. But he applied a new business model to it that was not – existing at that point in time, Um, you know, e-commerce hadn't been implemented in that Mm -hmm. sector. Henry the dentist did the same. Um, You know, we we had multiple examples of innovation within a business model um, rather than just a brand new idea, a brand new product, because those I mean, those are exceptional. They, they, you know, very often you don't need to have these to start a business. So, it's interesting?
2: I don't know how much you know about how Second City functions here. So, we 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 have a two act scripted show and a third act that's an improv set, and we do about two show and on our resident stage here. We do maybe two original. We only do original work. So, we write an original show every year, but it's the same sort of f- format, um, and it's uh, created in front of the audience. It's that yes and idea is the first four weeks of a process and then sort of ruthless editing and all that. But you can see it's sort of rapid prototyping in front of audiences. The material that gets laughs and work stays in the show. The other stuff gets thrown out. The improv set is used to do the really risky stuff. The first two acts of the stuff is is a little bit more protected. Um, And when you talk about something like this idea around shallow dives, that feels to me like... Oh, that's something that we do here during our process when we're just testing something out in a low risk environment to see if it kind of works. and if we, if it kind of does, we go, huh, let's let's keep that around. And then and then you really keep at it if it starts to work more. But it also it requires a couple things. It requires that you're okay with good enough. and it requires with everything being disposable. <laughs> which again, I think for regular humans is hard.
3: Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the shallow dives where we, when we talk about in the book, it's in regards to the ideation triangle where we're saying you need to figure out if you're solving a large oper- for a la- large opportunity, mm-hmm. do you have relevant skills uh, to, to bring, to bring it uh, to fruition? So these are the kinds of things that you have to test for. And when you're doing the shallow dive, the, you know, first and foremost, you need to really ask. Ask yourself, are you really solving a big problem? Is this really a large opportunity? Because a lot of times the founders think they're going after something. And one of the founders said that, you know, they, and by by the way, we had several that pivoted and had to start over because they did their shallow dives and they realized that nobody really was that interested in what they were doing. Mm -hmm. So it's very, very important step to vet and ask yourself, are you really solving uh, for a large enough opportunity and can you make money at it how are you going to overcome the hurdles the operating hurdles the business model components can you actually make money do the unit economics make sense all of that is part of the business uh, and the well the evaluation stage here as you're going through a shallow dive and and that's what the entrepreneurs needed to do when they were vetting their different ideas and in some cases they you know they did, move forward with an actual product uh and then had to come to some painful decisions later on that it wasn't working out as they had hoped and, th- and then they needed to start over
2: and Kathleen, i think one of the problems that you guys talk about in the book is the fact that you can't be so in love with your idea that you lose sight of the problem you're trying to solve and those things yes. might not light up
0: yes and and very often what you see is entrepreneurs uh, act like parents, they think they have a baby, uh, which is yeah. their idea. And they think it's the best thing in the world. And they, they just want to hear the feedback that that is good, because uh, their baby is perfect. Um, well, um, <laughs> you know, you need to let go. Um, or, you know, in the first place, you need to be able uh, to take some distance and, and, and look at it, uh, in a, in a fairly rational way, I would say, to make sure that you only invest time and energy if it makes sense. And that's where the shallow dives come in. And that's where your analogies is exactly right. It's just testing whether or not there is reaction that is good enough. Okay. Um, and by the way, on, on, on that front. So part of it is talking to people, just asking them. But the risk is that as, as a parent, you will only hear the positive stuff and that you don't want to end up with. So you need to be open to negative feedback, which is, which is not a given. Um, and, and not discard it like, oh, this person doesn't know. They don't understand my idea. I didn't explain it well, whatever. Just be open and, and try and absorb the feedback you get. Part of what we learned in this process, by the way, which was a surprise to me. And I don't know how that works in your business, but is independent from one another. The entrepreneurs all said that the feedback you need to get needs to be overwhelmingly positive. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, if your audience is not supporting you in a way that to some extent surprises you, you should basically go back to the drawing board, as Jim says, and, and start thinking about, well, I mean, you know, how do I modify this in a way that my audience is going to be loving it and, and cheering for it and, and giving me all the positive feedback that it should get. So yes, uh, it's, it's a pitfall and, um, it's a dangerous one because if you don't take in the right feedback, you might invest a lot of time, a lot of energy and still be sent back to the drawing board.
2: I think both of you have probably gone to comedy shows or you've watched comedy and you've recognized that successful comedy means about 98% of the audience needs to be laughing at the same time. If it's something like 60, (laughs) can you imagine that, like how awkward it'd be if 40% of the room is not laughing either? I mean, I think we've been to shows like that when people are experimenting, but But, yeah, overwhelmingly. And the other thing, and Jim, I want you to talk about this too, and you can comment on that, but... I've seen in my field where people don't want to try out a character, an idea for fear that someone's stealing it. And I'm like, if you got one character or one idea, it's
3: game over already. Put it out there. Well, there's no, I mean, you have to put it out there because I think that entrepreneurs may be, especially first-time entrepreneurs, may be a little over-concerned that someone may steal their idea. Uh, It's not likely to happen. I mean, Okay, maybe if you've invented a cure for cancer and it's a proprietary discovery, you please know. But uh, you know, you know, yeah. Please, please share that. But, but no, in, in, I'm I'm joking. But the reality is that in the vast majority of cases with a startup no one is you don't have to have that fear it's uh, it's irrational to have the fear that somebody else is going to want to steal that idea and even if they did it comes down to the execution is even more important than the idea itself so while the idea of course is important and you it's like pointing the rocket ship in the right direction if it's not pointed right you're never going to get there But assuming it is, it's still about the the execution steps, the ignition, the scale up, the financing resources. There are a lot of factors that come into play that will determine success or failure. So I don't think people should be overly concerned about someone stealing an idea. It's very important to go out and talk to lots of people about your idea. You need to get feedback. You need lots of feedback. Uh, And and by the way, it's not just about getting feedback on the idea. At the end of the day, you're going to need to hire a team. So you need to constantly be talking about it and getting people excited about it. And you never know who's going to introduce you to someone that will end up being a very important component of your team.
2: That's right. So, and and, uh, Catalina, this is something I want to talk to you about uh, because there are a lot of variables. Um, However, um, we make things too complicated. And this is something I know in my work. And then I I just interviewed Morgan household who has a great new book called same as ever. And he writes in the book, quote, what you need to identify the core principles, generally three to 12 of them that govern the field. That's it. He says, we overcomplicate it. And you write, uh, as a founder, uh, uh, Catalina quote, I would argue that as a founder, you don't need more than 10 metrics. And I thought that was really interesting because, um, it's a no-brainer once I think you take a step back and be like, no human being can keep every one of these you know, thoughts in our mind. However, having a like you gotta be able to tell a potential investor how this thing makes money. Like there's just no no question. Um and there and there's other things as well, but it's it can't be endless. So talk to me about how you how you came to 10. And I know it's probably, you know, it could be more or less, but what your thinking is with regard to that.
0: Uh the the, the first thought that comes to mind is as angel investors, we indeed talk to a lot of entrepreneurs that try to explain how their business is going to make money, how it functions, how it can be translated in metrics. And I can tell you that probably about 90% do it, but can't actually mm. don't have the right metrics or have partial metrics and, and so forth. Um, is, is 10 metrics the right number? It's, it's probably 10 is a lot. I would say if you can do it with five, that's better. Mm. Uh, but that's difficult typically. And I would say 10, 10 would be the maximum, but for each metric, you can have somebody in your organization that, that has another 10 metrics that build up to that one metric. If you right. see what I mean, that's yeah. the perfect situation. Um, there is no science behind the 10. Uh, it's just, uh, in our, in my own experience as an entrepreneur, but coaching entrepreneurs and as an angel investor. Um, you know, that's, that's a maximum. Uh, you need to have the 10 right metrics, by the way. Uh, yeah. you need to be able, as you said, to explain what drives your business, what is important. Uh, and, you know, in terms of growth, for example, Uh, on which button you're going to push, what the impact is going to be on the other metrics and what that means in terms of financing. Now, one thing is for sure. One key metric is cash. Hmm. You always want to know how much cash you have, how much cash you burn, And where you stand on that front. And I see you smile, um, but uh, you would be surprised that many entrepreneurs, even not at the early stage, have only a generic view on the cash they have on the bank. Um, or they think they're going to get cash in, but the contract has just been signed and it needs to go through procurement and it takes another three months to get validated. And then it takes another two weeks to get on your bank account. And that can be a problem if you assume it's going to be there soon and you don't get it, but you still need to pay people and suppliers, etc. So a key metric is cash, and um you need another few ones and and that's the way to basically manage in a way that you're not blindfolded
2: i, I i'm smiling for a couple of reasons one when i started at second city we were cash only so you know, uh-huh. i started in 1988 and i worked in the box office like in the 1990 or whatever so cash only uh and then you know our business got shut down because of covid so so we -hmm. had other business lines that could keep going and and they did but not our cash business and and we almost went bankrupt so it was just a like like getting you know splashed in the face all of a sudden like oh this is this is how, how this works and so and I'm also laughing because I was just we have a board meeting and I'm looking at the board deck and there's a whole slide on cash and all that and 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 you know analyzing the, the the business and the complexity of it but then also being able to like all right what's the story of this and I know when we went through our sale we got sold a couple of years ago uh I don't like I I know numbers a little bit but I'm I'm not the finance guy but I was brought in to tell the story of the business working with the finance guy who is there to answer what whatever financial questions needed to be answered to go in depth but but what's the sort of high level story of this and i was also fascinated and surprised in the book not by you because i sort of felt like this might come from you in, in terms of you but all these entrepreneurs how many of them mentioned culture and and surprised in the sense that i think what we all know is that's such a tricky word to define And um, and I like I like the definitions that they talk about and you talk about in the book. But were you from each of you, Jim, I'll start with you. Were you surprised that 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 was a a common among all these folks?
3: Uh, Definitely, it was a surprise that each and every one felt that culture was something that was not very well taught at school. And to the extent it was taught, it was underappreciated by the entrepreneurs. I think the fact is that you don't appreciate it until you're actually thrown in 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 a new business and, and you need to begin to manage the culture and begin to think about what that may mean. So there's no doubt that it's one of the underappreciated aspects of entrepreneurship. It's hard to define, it's hard to teach, it's hard to bring to life. All of it is is difficult. But it's very, very important. And one of the founders characterized it as calling it, culture is what people do when you're not around. Yeah. You know, so that yes. it's basically how they're going to behave when you're not in the office. And by the way, if, if you say, well, we don't really focus on culture, we don't have a culture, or the fact is, no, your business will have a culture. Whether you're All doing anything or not. Yeah, right. <laughs> Whether you're I mean, doing anything or not, it will develop. Mm-hmm. And it's going to develop. We've found after maybe 10 or so employees, anywhere between 10 and 20 or 30, a culture begins to evolve. And you have to play a role in defining it and in, in uh, uh, developing it uh, and pay, paying attention to it through how you communicate, how you hire and fire. Uh, and so uh, I know, Catalina, you have, I want to stop there because I know this is also an area of favorite for yourself. So please elaborate.
0: Uh, thanks, Jim. Uh, Kelly, this is one of my favorite parts in the book. Uh, it was a total surprise. Um, and I think, I think the entrepreneurs were very candid about their stories, but they were also candid about the fact that they learned a lot along the way. So they talked about it in, in terms of what I wish I would have known to some extent. So it's not that all of them knew it to start with. Um, I you know, Jim mentioned a lot of things, but but defining culture in in a sense that uh you know it, it it basically makes a difference uh in terms of what people do when you're not around. And when you think about it that way, it's absolutely crucial. Okay. Um I think we mentioned that in the book, but all things being equal, culture is what is going to give you a competitive edge vis-a-vis your biggest competitors? Okay. And one part that I love the most about uh, culture and, and, and the, the research we did it around it in, in, in our interviews is that the biggest lever to achieve the culture you want. I mean, obviously it starts, it starts with you as a founder because yep. you have certain norms and values and and, and and that's what you radiate and so forth. But the biggest lever is actually hiring and sure. performance management and firing. And it makes sense. But um Casting and, you is know, it it was so interesting to hear all of these people talk mm-hmm. about it and saying. You know, actually when you recruit people, make sure not to recruit just on IQ, recruit for cultural fit. I okay. mean, that's, that's strong. And, and, you know, make sure that in your interviews, you share your culture. So you get a reaction and you kind of get a sense if this person will share your norms and values and fit in it. Because if you hire, The wrong people from a cultural point of view. These people will basically, you know, behave like uh, maybe a rotten apple in a basket of apples. And and start infecting the other apples. You know, what, one thing that's for sure is if you hire somebody that doesn't share your norms and values and you start growing, they will hire other people. And there is a very high likelihood that they will hire people that are more like themselves. And there you go. The basket becomes bigger, but you get more of the wrong apples in in the basket. Um that was another important uh, point. And, and then I'll stop, but I, mm-hmm. I really love the whole part of culture. Um, Most of the founders told them that they actually decided to remain involved in hiring because of that. Yeah, Because they wanted to make sure that they had a feel for how people would fit the culture of the company and their own set of norms and values. And some told us, they had stopped being involved in hiring, but then many mistakes happened. And despite the fact that they were so busy and there were other things to worry about and forth, they came back to recruiting and to hiring in an active way because they knew how important it was.
2: It's so interesting talking to you about this in the sense that, so, you know, I, I'll, I'll have worked here for 35 years in October and almost all the other people on the leadership team are new, relatively new. Um, and so wow. there's this this interesting, you know, sort of toggle back and forth around, you know, what what culturally is is so important and 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 maybe what isn't. And I just pulled this up as you were talking because I, I was reading a book and uh, I sent this quote uh, to our chief operating operating officer Parisa Jalili, who I talk on the podcast a lot. So I just sent her a note. I go, hey, from the book I'm reading by Brent B. Shore quote, all businesses are loosely functioning disasters, end quote, (laughs) because it's funny. Uh, I think there is a hint of truth. Certainly at a place like Second City, which is, as you can imagine, working with comedians is is like herding cats sometimes. Uh, But also this idea that culturally we are one of the hallmarks of Second City is navigating the the uncharted everything's original it is a young talent it's all these different things but none of that would work if we didn't have these adages adages and ideas that are really embedded in our training that all of us are better than one of us that our my job is to make you look good and your job is to make me look good and if that is something we truly and literally before we go on stage every single night at Second City or if we're on a tour, or if I'm doing a speaking date with one other per- person, we pat on each other on the back and say, I got your back. And that might seem little or unimportant. I would say it's not. I would say it is, it is culture in action. Uh, it, is, it is physical. It is verbal. It is all of those things. And it speaks very loudly, um, especially because I've also seen it when it's not there. And, and, that, and that's where, where, where things often break down.
3: Well, and I, I just think that that's actually a great example of how the culture has to fit with the, uh, the business's objectives. So, yeah. for example, in the case of Blue Apron, I thought it was fascinating when Matt explained the, the, or, the origin of Blue Apron. The Blue Apron means that's a chef in training, someone who's learning how to actually oh, yeah. be a chef. Mm-hmm. And so that name, that chef, the blue apron that 's still used in the design of the bi- for the business, uh, is meant to infuse all aspects of their culture as well. The idea that it 's a learning based culture. you yeah. should be learning new ways yeah. to cook, helping everyone to learn about their business function, so basically taking that theme around learning that 's important for the business, but translating it into the culture priority for, the, for them as well. And I, so I think that it's very, very interesting. It ha- in other words, it has to be the cultural definition, the values that you are defining need to be business relevant. That's, that's mm-hmm. the point. Mm-hmm. Love it.
2: All right. So we always end the podcast by asking each of our guests to uh, give us a yes and story, a time in their life or work when they maybe normally would have said no, but they said yes. And kind of what happened? Uh, Catalina, could you start with us for a yes and story?
0: Sure. Um, you know, thinking about it, I, I think very often uh, I feel like saying no, but I end up saying yes. So I could, I could give this you feels like a it could go either of way. <laughs> yeah, but, 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 but no, no, but uh, I could give you a couple of examples, but I think the most relevant one here is a professional one. And I talked about my, uh, the beginning of my career um, at McKinsey and the fact that I rejoined McKinsey after business school. Um, you know, I wasn't sure I wanted to do that, but after 15 years, I was done with it. And I was, you know, still with this notion of I want to do something else. I'm not sure what it is, but, but I'm going to quit. Um, and this guy at McKinsey, who's my mentor comes along and says, Hey, listen, I've invested in this startup, just was created and you know i think you should invest as well and um you know go and and run it and 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 become the ceo and i was like no you must be kidding me i mean you know mm-hmm. I'm, I'm as as you look at me now i'm still a partner at mckinsey you know what am i going to do at the startup anyway but uh i ended up saying yes um it I, I didn't say yes uh and this was the beginning of my last 17 years in entrepreneurship but um, I said, okay, I'll do a couple of meetings and see if it's of interest to me. I, I really got fascinated. I talked to a bunch of other people asking them their opinion about who I was. If I had this passion to create and not in these terms, but was I somebody entrepreneurial and so forth? And they were like, yes, you are. Look at how you travel. I mean, you know, you're a very entrepreneurial person. So go ahead, do it and I ended up doing it uh, but uh, my first reaction was definitely a no and mm-hmm. see uh, it impacted my life in a fundamental way here I am talking about a book about entrepreneurship so Great. yeah
3: I love it Jim how about you well, I think that I, I actually would answer it in maybe a little bit similar in the sense of uh, almost like becoming a, the accidental entrepreneur. Even though I had, had always thought I had entrepreneurial qualities as a young kid, I wasn't exactly set on that. I mean, I thought maybe I'd want to just join a big corporation in media. I always had a passion for publishing or something along those lines. But what happened was after uh, launching the internet, uh, division of, and the website for Martha Stewart Living. That was my first sort of a big platform to launch her first website online in, in I think it was 1996. And, um, uh, and, and it, it was fairly high profile. So in terms of going live when she announced the URL on TV. And so it got a lot of buzz. And one day I got a call from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And the office of the director and CEO, Philippe de Montebello, his name, mm-hmm. uh, wanted to meet with me. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Why? And it was, he wanted to chat with me about the internet and learn more and see if I might be interested to help them figure things out for the Met, help them figure out what to do online, how much to spend, and importantly, how to manage 17 curators or whatever it was at the museum he thought if I could manage Martha Stewart, I somehow could manage his curators. So I, I get that. Normally, <laughs> yeah. I mean, anyone in a creative field would definitely get that. Yes. And, and uh I think that, my inclination might have been, no, I mean, I really, I mean, I was working with Martha Stewart, a uh, big brand, uh, just getting going, an amazing opportunity. And first inclination is like, no, why would I want to do that? But I thought, you know, this just sounds rather intriguing. So I, you know, literally walked through Central Park, went to the Met, met went through the Temple of Dendur and all the wonderful, you know, uh, p- museum pieces, meet Philippe de Montebello around his 17th century beautiful wooden desk and and you know we had this discussion and sort of hit it off and and it was after that i realized that there was an opportunity to actually start a business here and Mm -hmm. uh one thing led to another and that that's how i sort of uh i don't you know it's it was sort of a almost like a forced accident i took took the meeting and, and then it turned into, or I turned it into a, 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 significant business opportunity by creating an internet strategy consulting firm, which was called West End New Media. And that's really all happened due to that one phone call. Had, had the call never come in or I said, no, I'm too busy. It never would have happened. And I, and I just don't know if I would have gone off to be an entrepreneur.
2: It's so funny, right? How often that's the case of like, take, take the phone call. Take the meeting. It might seem weird. I mean, my story with that that I tell all the time is uh, Renee, getting a call from Renee Fleming's assistant for a meeting, and and being uh, why, why would Renee Fleming want to talk to me? And finding out she came to the show the night before where we were illegally sampling her voice throughout the show. Um, but it wasn't. But it, it, like, and I don't want to get sued. But that's not what it ended up being, and it ended up being this incredible collaboration that Second City did with Lyric Opera Chicago, and and, and worked with Renee for a few years. And it's like, yeah, it, it's it felt like it was a threat, and it's like it's not, it, it doesn't need to be, and it could be an opportunity. And and no, you don't know if you don't like take the call, take the meeting, and and incredible things can happen. And it's just like I don't think you get taught that in business school to the point of your book.
3: No, no, you have okay. to be willing to be open-minded and take meetings and actually i think uh, catalina i think we have a section we call it forced serendipity uh you need to push yourself out there You, you know you're not gonna find these things if you're not forcing yourself into these serendipitous situations yeah that's right
2: the book is called smart startups what every entrepreneur needs to know catalina daniels jim sherman thank you for coming on the pod
0: thank you kelly wonderful
3: thank thank you so much thank you kelly
1: Getting to Yes Hand is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Aridian Fierro from WGN. We get support at The Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about The Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com, or you can email us directly at, works at secondcity.com.